Turn with me tonight in your Bibles to Psalm 113. Psalm 113, and let's read the psalm together. Psalm 113, book of Psalms, of course, is easy to find. Psalm 113, let's hear the word of the Lord, reading, of course, from the authorized version. Praise ye the Lord. Praise, O ye servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun unto the going down of the same, the Lord's name is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like unto the Lord our God who dwelleth on high? who humbleth himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth. He raiseth up the poor out of the dust and lifteth the needy out of the dunghill, that he may set him with princes, even with the princes of his people. He maketh the barren woman to keep house and to be a joyful mother of children. Praise ye the Lord. Amen. We know that God will stamp with his own approval and blessing this reading of the Holy Scriptures. Now my text tonight is taken from Psalm 113, verses 7 and 8. And my theme this evening is lifted from the rubbish tip to the royal throne room. Now Psalm 113, right through to Psalm 118, are known as the great Hillel Psalms. These Psalms were sung by God's ancient people, especially around the time of the Feast of the Passover and the Feast of Pentecost and the Feast of the Tabernacles. And these Psalms are known as the Hallelujah Chorus. And I also believe that these psalms were sung by the Lord Jesus and his disciples. Remember, after the institution of the Lord's Supper, this was the night before he died in atoning death at Mount Calvary. They just left the upper room. The Bible says that they sang a hymn. And we're often wonder what hymn did they sing? And the answer is they sang the great Hallel psalm from Psalm 113 right through to Psalm 118. Now these psalms all have to do with praising God And if you look at Psalm 113 Here's a title, it's uninspired But it's nevertheless there An exhortation to praise God for his excellency And for his mercy Now notice something What are we commanded to do? And if you look at the very first word It says, praise ye the Lord. The word praise has to do with hallelujah. And it's offering hallelujahs to the Lord. Not only what are we commanded to do, but let's think of a second thing. Who are we to praise? And if you look at verse 1 very carefully, 
You'll notice the word Lord is mentioned three times. It's mentioned many times in the psalm. But in the first one, it says, praise ye the Lord. Praise, O ye servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. We'll go even further. When are we to praise the Lord? The answer's found in verses 2 and 3. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun unto the going down of the same, the Lord's name is to be praised. Do you see that? From the rising of the sun unto the going down of the same. From you get up in the morning to you go to bed at night, the Lord's name is to be praised. Praise ye the Lord continually. Praise him at all times. Doesn't the Bible say, rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. Even when you don't feel like it. When it's hard going. Remember Paul and Silas in prison? They were beaten. Their backs were sore. They thought, surely we're going to die. And at midnight we read they prayed and sang praises unto the Lord. You see, they discovered a very vital secret. All day and every day. Even when you feel down and depressed. And you feel like you want to quit. What are we to do? We're to praise the Lord. We're to sing unto him. And you know, once you begin to sing and offer praise, your, your, your spirit that's down will be quickened. Now, not only think of what we're to command it to do and who we're to praise and when we're to do it, but let's think of why we're to praise the Lord. You see, this psalm supplies the answer. Notice that we're to praise the Lord for his glory. Verse 4, the Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. We, we praise the Lord for who he is. The living and the true God. His glory is above the heavens. Notice it's in the plural. The aerial heavens, that's the sky. The, the spatial heavens, that, that's the far-flung corners of space. That's all the galaxies that make up our universe. And then think of the third heaven where, where God, Jehovah, dwells. We're to praise him not only for his glory, we're to praise him for his greatness. Verse 5, who is like unto the Lord our God, who, who dwelleth on high. You see, only God is great. Men like to think that they're great. But the reality is, only God is great. Because only God has immortality. Whenever the funeral was taking place of King Louis XIV in France, there was a black ebony casket with the king's remains sitting in the cathedral there in Paris. It had one candle on it. And the preacher came forward and snuffed out the candle. And he said, and this was the sermon, nothing else was said. Wouldn't, wouldn't this be a good sermon in a free Presbyterian church? Only God is great. That was the sermon. And he got up and pronounced the benediction and everybody went home. Only God is great. You see, Louis called himself Louis XIV the Great. But Louis XIV was dead. There was a day he was born, he lived his life and he died. But only God is great. Praise the Lord for his greatness. Praise him for his goodness. Look again at verse 6. Who humbleth himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth. Nahum the prophet said, the Lord is good. And do you think of the goodness of God to us, the children of men. 
how the Lord looks after the earth. How the Lord provides for us as creatures. Our health and strength. The gift of our food. The very breath that we breathe. Is all a gift of his love and grace and mercy to us. And also. We're to praise him for his grace. Look at verse 7. He raises up the poor out of the dust. And lifteth the needy out of the dunghill. That he may set him with princes. Even with the princes of his people. You see, this psalm and the psalmist here is telling us what this great, glorious, good God does. In grace, in free, sovereign grace, he raises up the poor out of the dust and lifts the needy out of the dunghill. And what's his purpose? That. He may set him with princes, even with the princes of his people. God in grace comes to where fallen sinful man is. The grace of God finds us in the rubbish tip. And God in grace lifts the sinner from the rubbish tip. And he's got a purpose and a plan to bring the sinner into the royal throne room itself. And that very act, God magnifies the wonder of his amazing grace. It's a glorious picture of the amazing grace of God. And grace always glorifies God. The gospel is all about the God of all grace and the grace of the glorious God. We could talk tonight about the God of all grace who acts in wondrous grace on the ground of the person and work of his Son to exalt sinners from the rubbish tip and bring them into the royal throne room. Verse 7 mentions the dunghill. I'll explain that a little later. But eight times in the Bible, there's reference to the dunghill. And Psalm 113 verse 7 is one of them. And eight's the number of new beginning. If you think of biblical numerics, eight's always associated with a new beginning, a fresh start. And here's someone who's living in the dust bowl, someone who's in the dunghill, and they're lifted out of it, and they're exalted, and they're brought into a new place and a new position. They're set among a new people, and, and it's a new beginning for them. You can have a new beginning tonight. And it's all rooted in the grace of God. Notice very quickly four things. You've got here a portrait of the sinner. Think of these words. Poor and needy. A higher man and woman being described here. And the answer is poor and needy. The word needy here is the same Hebrew word that's translated beggar in 1 Samuel in chapter 2 and verse 8. Think of Hannah's song. He raiseth up the poor out of the dust and lifteth up the beggar from the dunghill that he may set them among princes and to make them inherit the throne of glory. It's a tremendous theme. Hannah praises the Lord. She adores him. And and what does she say? She says that he raises up the poor out of the dust and lifteth the 
beggar out of the dunghill that he may set him among princes. It's the same theme. The reference to poor, we, we normally think of one who's materially poor or who's financially poor and, and they're left in a state of need and they're, they're left in, in destitution with little comforts and they have nothing left and, and probably end up, because they're poor, in a situation where they have to beg. And of course, there, there's many thousands of poor people like that in the world. And we think tonight of those who are homeless, those who have very little of this world's goods and all they have is maybe what they have in their back or often what they have in a bag and they're often cold and hungry and we should pray for the world's poor and we should support uh, the, the world's poor and do all that we can to help them not only in a bodily sense but especially in a spiritual sense now when we think of the word poor and needy I want you to go beyond the material and financial let's think about it in a spiritual sense because I believe the reference to poor here is a reference to spiritual poverty. In other words, you're thinking about an individual that has nothing spiritually to recommend them to God or to bring them to God. The reference to a beggar here is a spiritual beggar or a, a spiritual need. It's one who is spiritually bankrupt. He too, like the poor, has nothing to offer God. Spurgeon said the a reference to the beggar is that he cannot be anything else. He always and only will be in this position apart from the grace of God. And think of the poor, spiritually needy sinner who's brought to the place where he has to say before God, I have nothing and I am nothing and I can do nothing to recommend me to God. Remember the Lord Jesus said in the um, Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poverty of spirit brought to the place where you realize I'm spiritually poor and I'm spiritually bankrupt before God and I have nothing to recommend me to God. Remember, God is holy and we are sinful. God is righteous and we are unrighteous. And this is how God sees men and women. Throughout the world, there's thousands in the sight of God who are spiritually poor and spiritually bankrupt. And you think tonight of this province of Ulster, think of the many that attend church, many that come before the Lord and say, Lord, well, I want you to bring you this and I want you to bring you that. And Lord, I, I've, I've, I've bought this and I, I've paid for that. Add into the context there in Reformation times, Luther talked about many being merit mongers. And yet the reality is, as Isaiah says in 64 and 6, all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. All the good deeds that we can do, all our morality, all our own uh, perceived goodness, all the, the charitable acts. Men and women haven't a little goodness to recommend them to God so they can be acceptable to him. Let me ask the question tonight. How do you see yourself? Do you see yourself as God sees you? Do you accept that this is a true portrait out of Christ? You see, lots of Ulster people, decent people, upright people, church going, only see their self-righteousness. They see their own perceived goodness. They, 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 they see the need to, to inherit some merit or, or favour from God. And they say, well, I go to church, Pastor. I, I, I read my Bible. I, I pray. I, I say the Lord's Prayer. I... I um, 
I, I give money to charity. I, I, I observe the ordinances and ceremonies of the church. And they feel within themselves of some ability to render spiritual goodness that's acceptable to God. And they don't see themselves as poor and needy. They don't see themselves as spiritually poor or spiritually bankrupt before the Lord. See, a person who's spiritually poor and spiritually bankrupt before the Lord can do nothing to help themselves. They can't redeem themselves. The reality is they're without God and without Christ and at that moment without hope in the world. And the reality is in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 we read, For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So, so there's the portrait of the sinner. Now notice, secondly, the position of the sinner. Where is he at? Where is he living? And here's the answer. The answer's in the text. He raises up the poor out of the dust and lifteth the needy out of the dunghill. Where is he living? He's living in the dust and he's living in the dunghill. Now it's mentioned, as we've said, dunghill eight times in the Bible. Be like to live in a dunghill. What is the dunghill? We see we think of the word dunghill, we, we think of the duckle at the farm, or we think of the manure heap. But but that's not it's, it's part of the answer, but it's not the whole answer. The, the, the dunghill here is really the rubbish tip. And I'll explain that in a moment. But let me tell you what it's like. It's a depressing place. You, you think of building a house, maybe out of tin or cardboard or something in the middle or near the edge of a dunghill and you would say to yourself if there was a house built for me in the middle or the edge of the rubbish tip that would be the most depressing place to live in the world you'd be screaming get me out of here rightly so you see sin makes people miserable Sin is a depressing thing. The Bible speaks of the pleasures of sin for a season. But they're only for a season. The Bible says the way of the transgressor is hard. And you see, sin will mock you. Sin will make a fool out of you. Sin will rob you. Away over there in the book of Ecclesiastes, there was a challenge by Solomon. Remember he wrote Ecclesiastes in the middle years of his life and he was speaking to the young men and this is what he said rejoice O young man in thy youth and let thine heart cheer thee in the days of thy youth and walk in the ways of thine heart not in the ways of God and in the sight of thine eyes in other words everything you see that you want go ahead and get it but know thou this is what I want to get over to you young people know thou that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. There's a day of accountability. There's a day of reckoning that's coming. You see, sin will rob you. Sin will destroy you. You you think of the suicide rate in Northern Ireland. Do you know that approximately last year there was 300 suicides? You you add into that the the abortion rate for Northern Ireland, even though they... um, Revised Act for Abortion doesn't apply to Northern Ireland. Add into that mix the immorality, the godlessness, the lawlessness, where men and women no longer are afraid to blush at their sin. 
sin is paraded openly. They're proud to sin. As the Bible says, men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And yet they don't realize that whatsoever they sow, they will also reap for God is not mocked. You think of the drug abuse. You think of the alcohol dependency. Think tonight of the, the thousands who don't attend church. The, the children who are never at Sunday school. Think of what the headmistress told me a few Fridays ago. Out of 210 pupils, 28% are down now as non-religious. And, and the majority are from within the ranks of the Protestant community. Non-religious, atheistic now, agnostic now. Nothing to do with the church. And you think of the, the thousands that are living a meager lifestyle. A joyless existence. Not, not truly satisfied. That their life is dry and barren. It's meaningless. They, they have no purpose. They're, they're, they're cast down in their spirit. It's a joyless existence. Physically life. Enjoying the things of the world. But the reality is spiritually dead to all that God is. Spiritually dead to Christ. Spiritually dead to a joy and a life of contentment and meaning and purpose. Remember Jesus said, I'm come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. It's a depressing place to have a house in a dunghill. It's also a defiling place. You think of the smell and the rubbish tip. Think of the sight of the rubbish tip. Opening the window, looking out the door. Think of the sound in the rubbish tip. You know, in Old Testament times, the city of Jerusalem, thousands of inhabitants. What did they do with the rubbish? Did you ever think of that? They, they had to have rubbish collectors. They had to go somewhere with the trash. What about the carcasses of the dead animals? What about the manure from the animals? What about human waste? What about dead bodies? The poor? The lepers? Do you know what they did? They took them outside of Jerusalem to a place called the Valley of Hinnom. And that's where the rubbish tip was. And that's what David is making reference to. He's thinking of the poor and the needy living out there in the midst of the rubbish tip. It's a defiling place. It's a place of stench, a place of filth, a place where, as we've said, the lepers are living. Now imagine living in a rubbish tip. The fire's being burned and the smell of burning flesh. Lepers going about calling themselves unclean. And yet in a spiritual sense, that's where God sees men and women living without him. They live in a depressing place because they're without God and Christ and hope. But they live in a defiling place. They live in the midst of that which is unclean. That which as affects them. You see, the Lord is not out to pamper us. He's not out to praise us and say, you're, you're great and you're, you're this or you're that and the other. The Lord must bring us low first. He must show us what we are in his sight, but he must show us where we're at. It's not only a defiling place, but I believe the rubbish tip was a deadly place. You think of the vermin of the day that were there, probably the rats and the mice. You think of the flies, think of disease, think of death. To me, the rubbish tip would carry a health warning. 
It was Nebuchadnezzar that told Daniel and his friends. He threatened to make their houses like a dunghill. A place of death. A place of destruction. A place of disease. And if you're not saved tonight, if you're not trusting in Christ, that's what you're like before God. And that's where you're living. You're living in a depressing, defiling, deadly place. Notice very quickly the pardon of the sinner. If you go back to our text, he, it's a reference to the Lord. We're told here what he does. We're told firstly, who humbled himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth. He came to where we are. The the Bible says in Philippians chapter 2, he humbled himself. Think of the Lord God Almighty, this holy God, humbling himself to behold the children of men, to come down to where we are. Doesn't the Bible tell us in Luke 19 and 10, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And over in John's Gospel here, in 1 John chapter 4, in the verse uh, 14, we read this marvellous statement, and we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Saviour, of the world. And he came with compassion. He came with care. He came with concern. He, he, he came in an act of grace and love. The poor and the needy didn't deserve it. They didn't desire it. But the Bible says, but when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law. And he chose to act in grace and love. It says, He raises up the poor out of the dust and lifteth the needy out of the dunghill. Think of the word raiseth up the poor out of. Lifteth the needy out of. It was his choice for us. It, it was his action. He took the initiative. He, he came in love. We were singing, love lifted me. And, and it's him that does the choosing. It's him that does the cleansing. It's him that does the caring. Think of Psalm 40, a tremendous psalm. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined unto me and heard my cry. He brought me up also out of an horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock, and established my going. You see, the psalmist realized, I can't climb out myself. You, you can't better oneself with religion or clean living. You, you, you can't be helped by others. In the family circle, grace doesn't run in families. He can't be helped by the church. It's not the church that saves. It's not the pastor or the priest that saves. It's the Lord that does it. He, this this great glorious God, this great God, this good God, this this God of grace. Is there any wonder Jonah 2.9 says salvation is of the Lord? You see, the Lord gets all the glory. Love lifted me. Love is the name of God. God is love, the Bible says. You ask yourself the question, who would want a poor, dirty, smelly, needy beggar? Christ does. Why? Because of his great love for us. Christ loves the unholy, the unclean, the unlovable. And you know what? It's it's a wonderful monument of grace. A sinner saved by blood. 
The streams of love I trace up to the fountain of God. And in his wondrous mercy, see eternal thoughts of love for me. One final thought. Think of the position of the sinner. Look at verse 8. Here's the plan and purpose of grace. That he may set him with princes. Even with the princes of his people. It's a tremendous theme here. The inheritance of the people of God. A complete change of lifestyle. Brought into a new position. Set with princes. Where do you live now? Oh, I live in the palace now. I've got my own throne now. Well, where did you formerly live? I, I lived in the rubbish tip. He's got a new portion. All that the princes enjoy, he or she now enjoys. Now let me finish with this little story. This is a true story. We all love a rags to riches story. You've heard about Singer sewing machines, haven't you? Maybe some of you have one. Probably the best sewing machines in the world. At least Isaac Singer thought so. He, he invented them. And he made lots of money. And he left a fortune. And he left a fortune to um, his wife and to his daughter. And whenever his daughter died... His daughter, I believe, was called Daisy Alexander Singer. She made a will. And she decided in something like 1937 that she was going to leave half of her company or half of her father's fortune to her lawyer, a man called Barry Cohen. And um, what she did was that she got a bottle and she put a letter inside the bottle and she threw the bottle into the River Thames, and her intention was whoever found the bottle and read the letter would inherit the other half of her father's fortune. Now, in California, in 1949, so this was probably 12 or 13 years later, there was a, a restaurant worker by the name of Jack Verne. W-U-R-M And he was one day walking along the beach in San Francisco And this bottle just washed up at his feet And he noticed there was something inside Now he was broke, he was penniless, he was out of a job uh, Even though he was a restaurant worker uh, And uh, he lived in a very poor house with a wife and a child And he, he noticed the bottle had a message inside it So he opened up the, the bottle Pulled the, the envelope out or the paper out And this is what it said and I read to avoid all confusion, I leave my entire estate to the lawyer. To, sorry, I, I leave my entire estate to the lucky person who finds this bottle, and to my attorney Barry Cohen, share and share alike. Signed Daisy Alexander Singer, June the twentieth, nineteen thirty-seven. She died at the age of eighty. She died in nineteen forty. But she had put this in the River Thames in 1937. She was childless. She was worth about $12 million. Uh, and uh, that man, Jack Verne, had a complete change of lifestyle. And it was in the, the paper and it was in the New York Times. From rags to riches. Now, do you imagine this as I finish? When Jack Verne got the message, 
He kept the message hidden for three months. He thought it was a joke. He thought it was somebody playing a trick on him. And it just happened to be one night he was at a party and there were some lawyers there and he happened, probably with a wee drop of the critter in him, he spilled out this story and they were all laughing. But one lawyer said, Daisy Alexander Singer, I know that name. That's the daughter of Isaac Singer, the inventor of the Singer sewing machine. Bring that to me tomorrow. And that's how it all started. And Jack Verms became a very wealthy man. What if he'd thrown away the message? What if he disregarded it? What if he'd put it back? It's nonsense. Forget about it. And how many are doing that with the gospel? And yet here's a rags for riches story. The Lord wants to paint your portrait. He wants you to accept it. He, he, he wants you to realize where you're living apart from his grace and apart from him. He wants to bring you into a state of peace and pardon with himself. And he promises to give you an inheritance amongst the people of God. You can be an heir to God's throne in Jesus Christ. That's the inheritance God has. Will you accept it tonight? What will you do with the message? May the Lord bless these few words to your heart this evening.